0: Do you long to see the kitchens of historic buildings, but can be frustrated to learn that the gift shop has replaced the kitchen? Do you want to see old restaurants and corner stores recognized as historic buildings? We talk to historic preservation expert Carrie Smith about these matters. It's on Tip of the Tongue. The tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Carrie Smith is a registered interior designer with a master's in historic preservation from the School of Architecture at Tulane University. Her thesis dealt with the balance between preservation of the historic fabric of buildings and the modernization that fits life today. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this because it's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> <laughs> we share that, absolutely. <laughs> it drives me crazy when I go to a home that's been preserved, not necessarily someone's personal home, but a home that's open for viewing. Sure and there's no kitchen. The kitchens have been totally removed, and all of this office space has been added into the kitchen. And the only parts of the house that are really considered important are what I call the pretty parts of the house. So the bedrooms, the living room, the dining room, often with the table set beautifully Mm -hmm. with china and fake food, (laughs) and silverware, and all of that sort of thing. And the fact that Someone had to prepare the food, store the food, do all of that sort of
1: thing. Just didn't happen. All of those messy things away from sight, yes.
0: So it's also true, I think, that people are becoming more aware, not necessarily because they're worried about historic preservation, but because they realize that the lives of all of the people who prepared these things has been erased by erasing every mention of it and I also think that there have been some popular television shows that have talked about the kitchen supporting the the, the big house kind right. of thing. And that also has, I think, increased people's interest in what used to be. And even places like Mount Vernon have now decided that they needed to restore the kitchen, and they want to bring back the distilleries that George Washington had on his property and all of that sort of thing. So it is turning into something that's a little bit more sensitive and inclusive than it used to be. But often, even today, people still forget that these spaces are really important, and they fail to document them. Even if you're going to get rid of whatever's there, at least document Document, it. Document,
1: document, document.
0: So since you, (laughs) this is is my pet peeve,
1: having no credentials whatsoever. (laughs) And so how do you feel about this? I completely agree with you. I think that there is a real missed opportunity. And we're starting to see a shift. And I think that fundamentally is coming partly out of a shift in the preservation industry as well, where... Traditionally, people who identify themselves as preservationists have often been wealthy, often been mostly white, a lot of retired women with time. And, you know, history is told by by the people who can afford to tell it. right? Yes. And people who control the story. So there's been a lot of of. You know, majority of what people think of as preservation, especially with historic house museums, has been, you know, driven by that community and focused on those sorts of things. How do you show this grand lifestyle that no longer exists, right? The house on the hill, the plantation home, you know, we see a lot of that, obviously, in the South. And I think that there, um, at least within the preservation community, there's a very, very big push to start to to recognize and elevate the stories of the enslaved, the workers, the, you know, the the sort of blue collar aspects of how did a big house function? How did this wealthy family actually, how were they supported by this literal team of people, free or enslaved, who were who were working behind the scenes? And I think it's a beautiful shift to see happening. It's very late to the game, Um, But that, I think, necessitates a a real shift in especially historic house museums, how those are presented. You know, they can, even to me, someone who loves interiors and loves housing and loves history, I don't often sort of seek those places out because a lot of that sun tends to be a bit dry and a bit follow the the tour guide and here's the, the single baked story that we've told about this house, as opposed to finding a way to engage people in the time in history that we're talking about or the region that we're talking about and and really get people to to feel and sense what life was like um, in a different place in a different time. And I think there's there's a big shift happening in preservation, but it's it's pretty slow. And how do you recapture the community's interest in getting them to to come and see those things when you're battling with social media and virtual reality and you know every other means of entertainment how do you how do you encourage people to to engage in that sort of thing it's a, it's an interesting problem
0: and so what do people do there's this kind of formalized preservation that results in people having public access to right. a place what about when you're doing a house mm-hmm. yourself right. and you have to live in it. So you obviously don't want to be hauling wood no. <laughs> into your cast iron stove exactly. or whatever.
1: <laughs> I, that's, that's as you mentioned, the sort of the core of my thesis work and my, my research through the preservation program at Tulane is really thinking about that. I'm a relatively recent resident of New Orleans. I've lived in New England in the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest for my whole life, Um, though I have had family in the South and I've spent a lot of time down here as a a younger person. The thing that really startled me about New Orleans is the beautiful level of preservation that we have on exterior of buildings, right? A majority of the city is considered a historic district of one kind or another. And there are, you know, financial opportunities and there are protections in place, um, you know, however you approach that in terms of whether preservation is punitive or encouraging. Right. But there's, you know, for better or worse, there's no limitation on what you can do to the inside unless you have a museum home, unless someone has an easement that's preventing you from changing things. Or if you're getting tax credits, tax credits, Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, Which, you know, it's a whole other conversation about tax credits benefiting income-producing properties but not homeowner properties. So you're sort of left with, okay, I have this beautiful house. I'm limited to what I can do on the outside because of the historic district restrictions, but the inside is a blank slate. And I think so many homeowners, especially if they're faced with an older home that has materials in it that they don't necessarily understand or understand the benefit of or the history of, and if you don't have the benefit of working with, a designer or an architect or a contractor who also understands historic homes, the easiest thing is to gut it down to the studs, right? It's my, <laughs> my, the bane of my existence is every real estate ad that for a home that's like renovated down to the studs as if this is supposed to be an amazing thing.
0: Right. And
1: and to me, the reason that I wanted to kind of focus on this in my thesis is to really give people a bit of an introduction to what all of this stuff is and why you should keep it. And also with the, the... the caveat that we live in the 21st century, we we have technology. Things have altered. Things have, our lifestyle is different. We certainly don't have the same kitchens we had even 100 years ago, much less 200 years ago. And a lot of our historic fabric of homes in New Orleans are that old, if not older. So, how do you approach, you know, maintaining the historic fabric of something like a kitchen while still being able to modernize it with some level of moderation in in and putting something in there that feels congruous with, with what's already there. And so, how do you do it? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting. I spend a lot of time sort of observing people in uh, social media groups, Facebook groups, old house lovers, things like that. Because I want to understand what sort of the general public thinks about preservation and what they're supposed to do. And I see so many people with these beautiful early 1800s homes, even some late 1700s homes in other parts of the country, saying I want to put in, you know, a kitchen that's true to the period. I was like, "Well, are you <laughs> going to carry water from the backyard? Where's your open flame? You know, where are you, you know, where are you going to put your your cast iron stove?" Um, when does the ice man come to deliver your block of ice? Right, we don't live that way. We don't right. expect anyone to live right. that way. We don't have outdoor plumbing anymore right. either. Well, you
0: couldn't you couldn't live in it. No. You'd never get an occupancy
1: <laughs> <Right>. permit. Exactly, <laughs> there are building and safety codes for a reason. Um, we have electricity. Is that going to stop when you get to the kitchen? how How do you manage this? So I think it's it's thinking about things like materiality. Like if you truly want a, a kitchen that looks like it fits in your 1700s home then you're talking about freestanding furniture and in different styled appliances. There are companies that make, you know, sort of period vintage things that might fit a little bit better into a, a space that looks like that. But it's also, you know, it's something we talk about in preservation is – period of significance, right? Are you taking this kitchen idea back to, you know, the year your home was built? Your home is 300 years old. (laughs) You can pick an appropriate spot along that timeline and be true to that. And that has as much value as it does, you know, the the year that home was built to, you know, a hundred years after that home was built. I mean,
0: that's even true with furniture. Absolutely. Because if people continue to live, a family continues to live in a home there's going to be old Back furniture, yeah. new furniture, you know. There's always a mix of things. Right. you
1: never, unless, unless you are running a historic house museum and you've drawn a bright line about we are representing life in this home in 1805 and this is what it's all going to look like. Mm-hmm. You know, even then at that point, you're going to have things in that home that existed up until that year. Right. It's just, right. are you excising things that happened after that? Right. And how do you make those choices? And I think that's where people get so overwhelmed that they just sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right,
0: because if you um, if you realize that in 1805 there wasn't electricity. Right. <laughs> are you going to not have electricity what are you going to in do? this house? Yeah, exactly. And of course if the furniture continued to exist, it would have been existing in a place without electricity exactly. and without air conditioning and all of those all of things. that. Um and we are so worried if we don't have those things that things will deteriorate right. and whatever. It's not just,
1: you know, it's personal comfort, but it's also health and safety. There's there's all sorts of reasons for those things these days. We can mitigate some of that. No one has to live with air conditioning. You'd be pretty miserable. But it has effects on, on the fabric of your home. It has right. effects on the things that are in your home. Modern, you know, your clothing made out of fabrics these days is going to react to humidity differently than... Your shoes. Than, right? Yes. All of that stuff. <laughs> so it's... I really think it's the other end of the pendulum for me. Don't necessarily try to recreate a kitchen. Put something in there that is functional to you, but respect the shell that it's in. One of the biggest heartbreaks I have about old homes especially in New Orleans is people who replace old windows. And there's a, a tremendous amount of research about how, you know, old wood windows are are can be just as energy efficient as new windows they're made to be. It's materials, old materials are made to be repaired and not thrown out and replaced, right? Right. And we, especially in in the architecture and design industry, talk a lot about sustainability. The Pacific Northwest, where I moved here from, everything up there is about sustainability. But there's really no core element of the lead program, which a lot of people talk about mm-hmm. in architecture, mm-hmm. there's no there's no basis in that program for reusing what we already have and that's shocking to yes, me. it's it always shocking. been shocking to me. Mm-hmm. but even more so having kind of gone into a, a mindset shift around preservation that we have so much that's already built, homes, yeah. buildings, restaurants, hotels. let's make good use of what we have and make it better um by understanding what we've what we've already got and i think there's nothing wrong with putting something modern into an older shell as long as those two things respect each other
0: well it's really interesting that you talk about lead because when we were built, re- renovating
1: mm-hmm. this building
0: so we are in a building that was built in 1912 okay. so it's not a 19th century building sure. but it, early 20th yeah. century and It's still standing. It was at Mm -hmm. one time the Dryads Market here in New Orleans. And when we were doing the renovation, that was a big question. Do we want this to be a Leeds building? And so I sat down with our architect and said, what do we have to do to make it a Leeds building? And we had to change it so radically that we decided that we weren't going to do that because it would be a different building. And now our architect was not a proponent of making it a Leeds building. But we did have the conversation. So I'm familiar with how much change there has to be. It's it's
1: really a system that that does a lot of good. but it's also changed the industry in such a way that it's it's very much focused on new construction. Mm-hmm. It came out of the Pacific Northwest, where something old is, you know, from the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the historic fabric of, of cities like Portland and Vancouver and Seattle is is not that old. Right. Right? Those were cities that were born out of the gold rush. So right. um, the, the view of historic fabric is different uh, in a place like that, but... Um, That that sustainable element of, okay, well, you have to you're sourcing materials within a 500 mile radius or you're using, you know, bamboo floors or something that is deemed sustainable. There's no way that's more sustainable than refinishing the existing floors that were already in that building. And, you know, it's it's to me the same thing with a with a historic home, you know, like I said, a a restaurant, a, a hotel building. It sometimes costs more money then ripping something out and putting mm-hmm. something new in because new materials are so inexpensive, right? We've, we've learned to engineer modern materials and we can put it in a container from Asia and suddenly we've got something that looks brand spanking new. Right. But I think we as a, as a country have sort of lost our ability to, to enjoy some of those historic details because they, they're just erased from us. We don't, we're not confronted with them the same way you are in in Europe or even in in countries like Mexico or South America, where where the infrastructure is is maintained in a different way. Right, um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't modern interiors in any of those places. That they've they've just learned to integrate those things a bit more than we have. So,
0: this is tip of the tongue, on the Nitty Grits podcasts. So. One of the things that kind of spurred this museum was the idea that if you go to a regular museum, an art museum or a decorative arts museum, only the most beautiful things are ever on display. Only the best design, that sort of thing. And the things that everyday people use are almost never maintained. And, you know, you can find gorgeous china that's made of... Bone, bone porcelain and that is pan painted with gold leaf and all <laughs> of that sort of thing and beautiful goblets that are silver or gold or whatever right. but the tiniest little fraction of people ate off of things like right. that and to find those things intact and as beautiful as they need to be to be in a museum is really unusual mm-hmm. um, but even more unusual is to be able to find those old clay plates, right. those wooden plates, yeah. those other things, those tin cups and things that people use every day. Yeah. Those things, they're, they're just lost. I mean, f- forget about banana leaves and right. coconut shells <laughs> and things like that. I mean, those, those are, are certainly gone. But it really is it really is amazing. And that was one of the things that we kept thinking about. That if you were going to study beer, Mm -hmm. part of what you need to study is the bottles that held the beer. And yes, you could collect a catalog of bottles so that if you wanted to buy a bottle for your beer manufacturing, you could see what the bottles looked like. But those are line drawings on pulp paper. (laughs) And um, yet... If you have the beer bottles themselves, what is a better, a better, um, um, actual measure of what that is than the actual bottle? Right. Not the picture of the bottle in the pulp catalog. And so we have many beer bottles (laughs) and other kinds of bottles and things like that. And you can line them up in some kind of chronological order and actually visually see how they change. Yeah. And I think it's important if you're going to study beer, um, not only to be able to read about how to make it or even to taste it, but to be able to see these peripheral things that are part of the support of the beer system. And so we have a lot of beer bottles. (laughs) But that is something I think people don't understand, that it has to be this complete thing. And if it isn't, then you've missed something. Yep. Oh, It's a shame because I think that all of the gadgets, mm-hmm. all of the things that people have, we have a, a, a person who was restoring a house here in New Orleans, and she took out, she had still in the house was the original fireplace in the kitchen mm-hmm. that was a hearth oh, wow. that you could insert yeah. the cast iron stove into yeah. one of those early stoves. Well, she knew it was important, but she also knew it wasn't going to fit into the house. Right. <laughs> so she brought it to us. That's great. And so we built a fake fireplace and put it in so that people could see, see the what it's yeah. like. So I feel like that is better than just having it cast
1: iron as, you know, something, that's scrap. That right, sitting in the corner somewhere. I think that, you know, one of the things that... that the preservation. I think when people think about historic preservation, the first thing they think about is old buildings, right? And because that's the easy thing to see. Um, you know, every town that you go through has got you know probably some you know historic home, the mayor's house, whatever that is, right? Someone understands that there's value in that. But I think equally, what you're saying is there's you know there's value in sort of the cultural resources, the tactile things that made up. The life uh, of the people who live there, and I think preservation, and as a as a community, is is getting wiser to that as well. Is that those things are important? Um, you know, I, I can't remember if it was at your museum here or somewhere else. Walking through and seeing. Um, a stack of multicolored Pyrex bowls that I bought at a vintage store when (laughs) I was in my 20s, and it's now been a long year, you know, a few decades since my 20s, Um, and thinking, oh, okay, I actually own something that's in a museum. And that's there's value in that, right? There's, There's understanding, you know, beer bottles, mixing bowls, whatever that is. How did those things change over the course of the Industrial Revolution through, you know, the early 20th century? World War II was such a big influence on everything innovation in everywhere materiality mm-hmm. I mean you know even thinking about about kitchen design going from freestanding wood furniture that you you know you, you rolled out your pastries or you cut your own meat or whatever that was you know on this solid wood furniture that may have come from a tree on your property or the you know the the next town over if you were in an urban environment to prefabricated, cabinet boxes with formica countertops and, you know, continuous counters and a sink that wasn't on legs and all of just watching the shift that happens in those sorts of details, even through something as simple as, as, you know, what were your countertops made out of? Right. Um, and I think it's, it, those kinds of things, especially if people can touch them, interact with them in a way, a kitchen, for example, is something that everyone experiences. Um, to understand sort of the the huge leaps forward that happened through through the changes of the industrial revolution through people moving from rural environments into more urban environments, and what that meant right the The whole idea of the Frankfurt kitchen right being mm-hmm. something that gets gets designed into a very small tenement space basically. And how do you feed yourself when you're used to, you know, you don't have the kitchen out back anymore. Right. You don't have the larder or the pantry or a, a separate scullery place. How do you live in a, in a, you know, in a fifth floor walk up with your own kitchen? I think that's, that's all s- things that just escape people's um, thought process when it comes to sort of the, the history of, of, of how we live And it also is not documented in other
0: ways, so that, you know, I'm talking about documenting beer bottles by having Mm -hmm. the beer bottle, but, um, for example, no one would have taken pictures in the
1: scullery, because that wasn't done. Don't do that. We we pretend that
0: that's not there.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) And... um, and And so, what did the scullery look like? Well, maybe the only way you're going to know is to try to reconstruct it from the things yeah, that were in it exactly. if you still have those and um that that's something that i I think um, we just need to think about, even as historians go to, um, to take uh, documents of Current life. Right, exactly. You you have to think, okay, this isn't a pretty picture. This is an important (laughs) picture. It's a useful picture. picture. Yes. And sometimes
1: we don't do that. I think we're starting to see a lot of that now, right? Like the National Trust considers anything older than 50 years (laughs) to be eligible for the National Register, right? right? So anything over 50 years is old enough. Yes. That right now is 1971. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so there's a lot of bias um, that comes from, especially, again, sort of um, very passionate, very interested old house lovers, for example, that things are only important if they're from the 1800s or the 1900s. Or at least
0: before they were born.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Like, I currently am eligible for the National Register, which is a little unnerving, right? Um, To think about that. And I think that, you know, we see, I actually looked into this as part of my thesis. Um, uh, The city of Austin in Texas has a tremendous amount of slab-on-grade ranch houses that were built in the 60s and 70s because of the, you know, kind of the early oil boom and all of that stuff that was happening there. And right now, Austin is a big population boom happening there. A Mm -hmm. lot of people moving from California, the West Coast, New York other places that want to buy a house. right? And um, what's happening, that I think there's there's a good understanding, I think, out of the last maybe 15 years of mid-century modern design. And there are a fair number of people who are trying to preserve that, mm-hmm. even at that sort of suburban level, right? These aren't necessarily museum quality mid-century houses, but there's a huge percentage of those houses that are being flipped, and they come in and you know tear out all the walls and tear out all the cabinets and all of the, the details that make that ranch house feel like it's part of its time. Mm-hmm. And you know my argument is really there's there's a way to thread that needle and and keep those things because. The outside of that house isn't gonna change. Right. But you step through the front door and it looks like it could be anywhere. Right. Yeah. New Orleans has that same problem, right? You look at real estate listings and and when you've taken a, a, a double shotgun or even a single shotgun and pulled out all the doors, all the pocket doors, all the wing walls, all of the the openings. And it's one twelve foot wide hallway right. all the way to the back of the house right. where, you know, the the kitchen with the island is moved, you know, 15 feet from the front door. It's it's unnerving. It doesn't feel right, right. to me. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just in that change alone, we've lost the hundreds of years of history that that house represented just by where the kitchen lives in the floor plan mm-hmm. is a really different thing. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. that there are um, – you know there are interesting ways to 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 kind of look at that bit of it and and figure out you know decide what's worth losing and that's a hard thing. But it, to your point, if we can't, then document the heck out of it. Right, right. right. I know, think take that's pictures so of that. Yes. You know, you may not think that that 1960s kitchen is worth preserving, but once you tear it out, it's gone. That's and right. no one else after you has the opportunity. So, but if at least you document it, leave photos for the future owner, they can, the same way someone is going to put back the plaster crown molding that someone took out of their, their, you know, Italianate house, Mm -hmm. that owner can go back and put that more 60s influenced kitchen back in that house if they want to at some future point, whether that's considered preservation is up to, you know, up for grabs with someone else, right? right? Recreating versus rehabilitating, but um but I think there's at least a, a knowledge base that is, that is represented and isn't, isn't just thrown out, right? Something that's from the 60s may not feel like it has value to us, you know, only this far forward, but 100 years from now or 200 years from now, if there's no documentation of that, then, then we've lost all of that. That has its own value, well, one of the things we've done
0: is we've created the National Culinary Heritage mm-hmm. Register. I love that. Just as a way to recognize those places that are 50 years old or older. Exactly. We've taken that from the National Trust, yeah. that 50-year that, uh, thing, or the National yeah. Park Service. Right. And just saying, if you are 50 years old or older and you have had your business, whether yeah. it's a grocery store or um a gas station that has a little section that sells pimento cheese and right. pickled pickled eggs or whatever or a restaurant or a factory that makes chocolate or a brewery or a distillery or whatever it might be all of those it could be a farm right. Those places need to be recognized. And a lot of times they don't fit into the Mm -hmm. National Park Service idea of what needs to be agreed. agreed. (laughs) So that's why we created our own. And so that's also something that we're trying to do to recognize all of those people who are doing something that is maybe just a factory that we have a, a factory that makes mills. Oh. It, they make mills uh-huh. for you to grind your own sure. flour. They're about seventy five years old. We have a culinary school that's over seventy five years old. I that's the kind of thing that National Trust is not really right. interested in, especially when the building isn't that <laughs> significant, yeah. I think, or you significant. Know,
1: they are the National Trust I think is doing a better job of recognizing cultural significance of of locations, um, especially with, again, in communities where, um, preservation, it, preservation, there's, there are no resources for mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, and someone coming in from outside the community, you know, me as a, as a sort of 50 year old white woman walking into a community of color, an Asian community, I may not see the same things that the community sees as valuable, right, So I think that there's there's a focus on on being more open to importance that is not just architectural, which I think is is huge, right. One thing I did notice, I think this just came out a couple of months ago, is the National Trust, as it's, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in this space, actually had a program to to give grants to, I think it was 50 restaurants across the country, to basically help them survive for the, the shutdowns during the COVID pandemic. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Dookie e. Chase, I believe, here got got one, was, was honored with one of his grants. But again, restaurants that had been around for more than 50 years that had Significance to the community. And I think that's, you know, the, the restaurant industry suffered so much over the last year and a half to see a body like the National Trust really understand that 50 grants to 50 restaurants helps 50 restaurants, right? That's right. It doesn't help 5000 restaurants. No. No, but it's a place to start, I think, and and especially it's better than no, restaurants. right? Exactly, yes. and they specifically said in their in their qualifications that they were focused on restaurants owned by people of color, by women, in underserved communities. So I I think that that preservation in general is starting to broaden its arms a little bit and and understand you know those things are important for for me to understand. I mean, you know, New Orleans is a great example of that. And I grew up in the Midwest. I've lived in New England, Pacific Northwest. Um, um, to move to a city that is majority people of color is mm-hmm. is I have a lot to learn here. And I'm grateful that those kinds of businesses are still in in business. That I that I don't have to just look at pictures in a book or in an archive. That I can go sit at the table and and have you know their food served to me in a way that I can I can partake of that culture and, and respect it in a different way. And I think that's for the national trust to recognize that I think is a, is a good step.
0: Yeah, it definitely, definitely <laughs> is. Thanks so much, Carrie. Thank you. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks for listening to tip of the tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.